Welcome to the Weave Your Bliss podcast. I'm your host, Paula Crossfield, a Vedic astrologer and business coach helping you to live in your purpose. And that is what this podcast is all about. So let's jump right in to the conversation. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the podcast. I am so looking forward to sharing with you this week's interview with Stephen Heiberger, who is my main mentor in Jyotisha or Vedic astrology. I went really deep with him. <laughs> we kind of went out of time in this episode. That's what I told my husband afterwards. It felt like we sort of entered a vortex together. We were talking about the teacher-student relationship and karma and so many wonderful topics. And I will tell you a little bit more after I share with you that if you have not seen, I have a program out now called Your Magnetic Blueprint, which is really geared towards spiritual coaches, healers, and guides who are looking to better leverage their cosmic blueprint and make more money and impact in this world. And this program is all about getting really clear about your goals, your vision, working through limiting beliefs that may come up around money, also using powerful spiritual tools like mantra and healing practices like meditation to help clear those things, getting really clear about your messaging around how you talk about what you do and also creating aligned offers that you love to sell and deliver on. It sounds like a lot. We're going to go deep in two months. But the goal is really to help you up-level your own thriving and wealth in this lifetime so that you can serve at the highest level possible. That's my goal. So if you're new to business, especially business online, that's what my specialty is, is in helping people make that transition. Or if you have an existing business and you just haven't connected yet with your ideal clients, this is a great program and it will set you up right for 2022. We start on December 9th, and today is actually the last day to get early bird pricing. So I hope you will join me. I look forward to jumping in with you if you decide to join. So today's episode with Steven Heiberger is a great episode for you if you are new to Vedic astrology, but also if you are a fan like I am. So just to tell you a little bit more about Steven, he has been deeply immersed in Vedic studies since the 90s and is a teacher of Vedic astrology, Ayurveda, Hasta, which is Vedic palmistry, Vastu, and Sanskrit. Stephen studied intensively with the world-renowned master of Vedic traditions, Hart Defoe, and also received the highest level of certification from the American College of Vedic Astrology. We go into this episode a little bit about Hart and his work with Hart, and also the teacher-student relationship. I think you'll enjoy that. Stephen is a graduate of the Ayurvedic Institute of New Mexico also, where he spent four years studying classical Ayurveda under Dr. Vasant Lad, and he's on faculty at Mount Madonna College of Ayurveda and also teaches at Southern California University of Health Sciences. Stephen teaches internationally and maintains a busy private practice in San Rafael, California, and he's also just starting a new cohort of students in January for his Vedic Astrology Level 1. It's a three-year program. You don't have to go through all three years, as he explains on this episode, but I just have to say he is such a thorough teacher. So if you have some interest or you have a desire to learn Vedic Astrology, he is an absolute gift. So I hope you enjoy this episode. 
Hello, Stephen. Welcome to the podcast. I'm so grateful that you're here. Thank you so much, Paula. It's very, very nice to be here. For those who uh, have been following me for a while, they know that basically everything I've learned about Jyotish has come from you. So it's a total honor to actually have oh you here. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm sure that's not true totally, but I appreciate it very much. So much of my foundation really and just continuing support has come through you and your lineage. So I think people are going to be really excited to hear from you. The first question I usually ask people is how did you come to this work? Like, how did you become a Jyotishi? How did you even discover Jyotish? Well, that is a long story, of course, but uh, I will try to condense that down a little bit and say a few words. I think that my journey uh, started when I was quite young because my parents were dance teachers and they traveled. And so we would travel with them. And when we would travel in the nights, Back in the day, you could look up and see the sky. And, you know, my parents were fascinated with the stars. And then as I aged and went on to university, I found that I was always looking up from an astronomical perspective. But I think that the travel then and the travel later in my life after I started to go to college and I took as many astronomy courses as I could and astrophysics courses without it becoming my major the travel was something that made me realize how much that we were all the same around the planet. But also, when I looked up at the sky, we were always fascinated with the depth of that and the, the exploration of space and time. I ended up taking a, a lot of philosophy courses, and so I ended up with a degree in philosophy from university. And I came and went, came and went. As we traveled, I went to some 70 countries by the time I was 30 years old, and we did so many things that were so eye-opening. And I think that really informed me later uh, in terms of astrology, because I feel like that a lot of people that I knew, and myself included, I didn't really even know what astrology was. And I didn't respect it. I didn't think it was anything worth I didn't think it had much value back in those days. But from all of the traveling, I found that I, um, well, I can say it in this way. I was a very good host for a lot of different critters that got <laughs> into my body. And those other beings, they directed me, you see. They directed me on a different path because Western medicine didn't know how to handle me. So I reached out and I started discovering more and more of natural medicine until finally one day I was an immigrant living in Europe, living in Denmark, and someone handed me a book and it was Dr. Vasant Lad, uh, who is a Ayurvedic master, uh, one who institute in New Mexico. And so anyway, I read that book in Danish and I found that within an hour, I thought to myself, my God, this is the mother of all healing. This is the mother natural medicine. I was already interested in India and had gone to India and had spent time in the highest Himalayas and had, I would call it spiritual experiences, near death, <laughs> spiritual experiences mm. uh, up near Mount Everest and all kinds of different things had come to feed into that. But the illness is really what brought me home. And I have to say, I came to all of this kind of kicking and screaming from a regular worldly life 
And yet I began to understand that there must be more. So I left New Mexico, came, I mean, left uh, Europe, came to New Mexico and started studying with Dr. Vasant Lad. But quickly, as soon as I arrived there, someone said to me, hey, there is a great Jyotishi, a great Vedic astrologer coming. And I said, Vedic what? I said, a great Vedic astrologer is coming. Heart Defoe is coming. You know, and, and I had befriended people at the front desk. And she said to me, well, you know what? I can get you first on the list. And I said, well, I shrugged my shoulders and said, well, okay, whatever. And soon as some weeks or a month later, you know, I got a call and they were like, are you coming in? You know, and I'm like, what? And they said, well, your appointment's in like 15 minutes. And I said, oh, okay. And I sauntered up to the Institute and walked in, no pen and paper, nothing, just walked in and sat down. And saw this gray-haired fox there who looked at me and started talking about my life, looked at my hands, looked at me, looked at these pieces of paper. I'd only given my birth, you know, data. And all of a sudden, spilling out of his mouth was my life. And he saw me like no one in the past had ever seen me. And I began to understand very quickly. It was one of those chilling moments where... If he could understand this about me, then there must be an interconnectivity. There must be a way that we can see the world that differs radically from the way that I had seen it previously. And so I had a, what I would call it a profound experience then. And I went back and saw him again and had more profound experiences. And of course, I know now that I had so many of the typical experiences of having met my teacher, having met my lineage that people, uh, at least in the East, speak about and so forth. Um, not all of it was pleasant uh, to begin with, but it all settled in. And so then I was ready to learn, learn, learn. That was back in the 90s. And so I decided that I would continue my journey in California and Hart stopped me and said, hey, why don't you stay here for a bit and help me teach? Uh, and so then that's when the apprenticeship uh, with him began. And his guru, Mantriji, lived in Toronto. And um, so he invited me to come up and learn Jyotish with him privately at his kitchen table. And I was so excited. I was, oh, my God, because he was so sought after as what I've often called him, the granddad of astrology in the West. or the astrologer's astrologer. And so he said to me, look, if you're going to start a practice, then I want you to meet my guru. I want you to have initiation with my, with my teacher, which was classical. As he did with his teacher, he traveled to India to see his teacher's teacher, Hari Haranji. And so that happened. And that experience for me, again, was a profound and funny and wild experience meeting Mantriji for the first time. And without him ever seeing a, quote, horoscope of mine, he told, started to spin out so many things in my life. And, oh, at this age, you did this and this. And at this age, someone gave you something. I said, well, I was very sick at that point. He said, yes, someone gave you something. And I said, really? And so things unfolded where he understood me again on a very different level. Uh, with no horoscope. And it made me realize that astrology or what people think that is astrology in the West 
because we've been um, given this message of uh, newspaper Western astrology, which is beautiful and fine in many ways, but it is only the tip of the iceberg when it comes to what actually astrology or Vedic astrology, Jyotisha from the East and from many cultures all over the world, what it was in history. And so joining a lineage, I began to understand that it's much more than just personality traits. And so there's so many different ways that that can unfold. So, and so that began and then Hart and I moved out to California. Hart, his wife and I shared a living place. You know, we were in a couple of apartments next door to each other. And, uh, and we started the Vedic Vidya Institute, which was a nonprofit, a 501c3. And we did that for many years before that was uh, finished out. And Hart and his wife went back to Canada. And then I started on my own teaching my own, you know, programs and, and so forth like that. I'm curious, you, so many things you said, I'm just like, oh, I want to talk more about that. Um, but let's, uh, well, let's well. start like with learning from Hart, who's, you know, one of the most learned Jyotishis alive today. Just can you talk a little bit about what it is like to learn from such a teacher and maybe say something about the student teacher relationship? Because that's such an important oh, yeah. thing in the Indian sciences. Well, it is wonderful intimidating, nerve-wracking, and deep, all at the same time and up and down. Because when there is destiny that is involved, when you meet the right teacher and you're in a lineage, meaning what does a lineage mean? That means that there has been an unbroken transmission. And in the East, that is one that is an oral tradition. There is a intensity because you can feel the importance of it. But there's also a responsibility because if the teacher is giving you that time, which is, we all don't have that much time, it's precious, then it becomes very important or it became very important to me to be able to carry that forward. Because if I, the teacher-student relationship in the East is one that both is it's both lifted up and pedestaled as well as maligned in various orders. And I understand. I understand why both are done. What I would say is, is that the, on the pedestaling, well, it's because it seeks an ideal. And the ideal is student. There are different levels of student. Some that are like tourists, if you will, who are coming to, to put their toe into the water. And that's beautiful. Because even they spread that knowledge into their world around them. They don't have to become full-fledged astrologers. They can spread that around and it benefits their family or their friends. It benefits themselves. They become a different person. And then up from that, you're another medium-level student that then goes further. But maybe they don't become the, the professional, but they do a lot of private work. And then there's the, the top level in any one of these kinds of uh, traditions or studies and so forth, which we could call a shishya. So we know the word guru, but the counterpart to that is the shishya. And a shishya is a high level student, one who has decided that the teacher, the tradition, 
is worthwhile, not out of blind faith, but out of informed faith, what's called Shraddha. And that Shraddha is something that then they take with them and they trust or the teacher, right? the Acharya. That relationship is one that typically in the past, it's one that they become bonded together because then the teacher and the student, they vow to each other that they're going to play their roles. But you see, it's different from vowing that we will do something together because of our egos, because of our personalities. Mm -hmm. In fact, the whole relationship is one of getting past the egos past the personalities. And so that's something that at times is hard for East and West for people to get through. And, uh, and unfortunately, the maligning of that relationship has come about too at different times because there are certain pe people who have said, I'm a teacher or I'm a guru, and then they abuse the relationship. We see it often uh, across in the West in yoga communities and at all. However, the idea is one that we're working towards an embetterment of humanity and that the tradition is something that comes out of a culture that has a we orientation instead of a hashtag me first, you know, instead of a me orientation. And I think that both the student-teacher relationship as well as we're talking about astrology, that astrology also has been misunderstood in this way in that astrology of the past has always been oriented towards the culture. The culture itself benefits, you see, by understanding more than just about personality traits, but about when things are to be done. Uh, that it is the very nature of time that has been delineated. That's how we have calendars. That's how we have our system, you see, of understanding the movements of the heavens came out of astronomy, the mathematics that we use today in the West to do all our computing of ones and zeros, the 10-based system, came out of India. And it came from the desire to understand the movement of time because with the movement of time, time is consciousness. And if you understand time, you can understand the movements of consciousness, not just for the self, but also for the culture. And in a culture that believes in the transmigration of the soul, then the future culture, the future bodies becomes one's own body of the future. And this interwoven matrix kind of a dynamic is something that they lived. So the teacher-student relationship is one that is also very much about preserving a culture, about that the knowledge is sacred. My uh, experience in doing it with Mr. Defoe was very good. And of course, you know, it always has its challenges and so forth. You know, he could be tough. I could be uh, wily myself. Uh, we're both very independent people. And so it goes. But, uh, you know, still to this day, I'm still learning with him. Uh, recently, there's been uh, some more uh, learning that has been happening. I feel very, very fortunate. Uh, that all these years later, these whatever it is now, tw 20, almost 25 years later, that it still goes on. And so I hope from my part, even though I will never, ever be anyone's guru, but I aspire to be an acharya. 
mm. a teacher who can deliver, you know, the message and the tradition um, to others. So again, that it lives on. I think it's so interesting that you use the word shraddha because it comes from, you know, the root for the word heart. It gets you out of the head and into the heart. And also, you know, how the prana is circulating in the body. That's relating to faith. It's just such a different way of thinking about faith than we have in the West. And so I also was interested in talking to you about one of the gifts of Jyotisha is upaya or remedies. And one Mm -hmm. remedy is said to be studying a Vedic science. So it's kind of like what you're talking about. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that, like studying Jyotisha or like you said, you know, maybe there's people who are students just so they can help their own life or help the people around them rather than becoming a Jyotishi themselves, but that as an upaya for their own karmic map. And maybe even you can talk a little bit about what is a karmic map? What are we seeing in a chart? You know, Mm -hmm. give people more of a sense of that. All right. Knowledge is powerful. The knowledge of self is the most powerful. Knowledge that is permanent as opposed to something that is ephemeral, something that is constantly shifting and changing is more valuable. We're all looking for knowledge that is unchanging. When we see, we get a new computer and we want to learn the new program and we want to learn how the new app works on our phone and so forth. We have a curiosity that is inbuilt and every human being has a curiosity to understand the unknown, to to learn something that will help to improve their situation, their life, or maybe even entertain them. But those types of knowledge, you, you can appreciate that if you have uh, Windows 7 now or some other version of, of Apple on your computer, it's useless. And there are all the books that were written to explain how to do it, but it's what? All now useless. It's all predated information. But understanding a Vedic science, gaining more and more knowledge is a life study. And it's an ocean of knowledge. But the various limbs of the Veda that give us insight into the core knowledge, they will always be valid universally. The kind of studies that the Vedic studies are, are ones that you can take with you, and they are an ocean because you will never, ever be able to learn it all. And that's also the beauty of it, the the humbling of it. But in that, The Vedas, which are four in number, are said to have these limbs, a way to understand the Veda. And those limbs being uh, six in number, they help the student to understand how to get into this deep knowledge. One of those is Jyotisha. So, of of understanding grammar and the the movement of the Veda and so forth, which are a lot of language orientation are there, but there's also this idea of there being ritual. And all rituals in the past and to this day are all done at specific times. We in the West have forgotten a lot about what time uh, in terms of ritual is about, even though, you know, we have these holy days, these holidays now, but in the past, in both the Christian, Judeo-Christian tradition and so forth, they were all based on astrological events, right? And so, this knowledge 
whether it is the Vedic sciences, whatever it may be, but Jyotish, as we're speaking about it, gives an ability to see the world from a different perspective. And that perspective is one, the more that we learn about it, it will be something that we can use from the cradle to the grave, from our own child's birth on through their life. We can help them by understanding time, understanding ourselves. So that kind of knowledge is invaluable. And it's also one that, in that sense, has a permanency to it. Of course, ultimately, the only thing that is unchanging is Atma or spirit, Ishwara, uh, to say another name for it. And Upaya or remedial measures start with the individual having understanding. One of the most important things is that a person, when they feel like in these times, when so many people have come and they said, oh my God, look at what's happened. Look what happened, what, what's happened in my personal life. Look, look what ha- what's happened in the world and, and to me and, and they're distraught. And one of the things that usually helps the most is that you can look and put it in time for them and say, look, you know what? You're going through this particular time frame, and in, in Vedic astrology, we can break the life up into chapters and then subchapters. Some of these chapters are 20 years long down to six years. And so the way we do this is we are reading the karma of the individual in time. So it's not just a static orientation, and it's also not just personality-based. It is real-world, objective viewpoint in time and say, look— You're in this period now. It lasts for another six months. After that, there will be improvement or could be the other way around. There could be decline, but then you will get better at this particular point. The main thing to know is, is this won't last forever. Nothing does. And so that's a starting point. So most people in terms of interfacing with Vedic astrology whether it is through getting a reading with someone or beginning to learn, of course, the learning goes in deep, right? Because they then begin to view their life differently. They then take control and can say, hey, now I understand what these time frames are more and more. Even a lay person, even a beginning person, right, can begin to understand that very quickly. And that's very helpful. And that's the ground, though, from which we can also go into quote, remedial measures in in their formal sense, and that is that there are different ways of trying to align the person with their environment. So remedial measures, or upaya, are a means through which we, when we look at a horoscope, when we look at a person, a horoscope, the hand, the face, we recognize that there is something that is misaligned with the greater whole. The idea is that we're all interconnected in a net. And if we think of it in this way, that we use seven planets plus something called Rahu Ketu, which are shadow planets. We have nine in total. Those seven represent, if you will, or we can, we can slot them into the seven rays of light. And then the shadow planets take infrared and ultraviolet. So that gives us the nine rays. If we look at a person's chart and recognize that, oh, there's something amiss with one of those rays, if we slot everything in the world into those nine rays, then we can look at that ray and say, oh, here, there's a problem, there's a misalignment in this ray. And it may seem strange, but 
an object, a, something that is done, something that is worked with, which seems to be disconnected. But <laughs> with the understanding, though, that it's within that same ray, but in, do, in adding, for example, into that ray, then the, gradually the misalignment starts to ebb. Or you see, so how is that done? Well, doing mantras, doing recitation, you see, uh, that are designed to pinpoint that particular area. Like let's suppose someone has, is born with a very afflicted moon, for example. So, and what does that mean? Well, um, there's a lot in that, but I would just say that, that the moon is very, very dark and it happens to be in certain positions that are less desirable then the person may have certain issues in the body. She may have problems with her reproductive system. She may have problems with her mother. She may have problems with nutrition and digestion and so forth, right? Like this. So then what will we do? Well, because in that ray of the moon, that particular white ray, we would then want to supplement that. We would want her to then work with the very themes of the mother by helping other mothers right, through charity or the very ray of the moon through, through doing recitation and mantras to the divine mother, the divine feminine, because that becomes, there are three levels that we can understand this through. One is the gross level, which might involve, you know, the person working with substances that were white, for example. Because this is, again, in the same ray as the moon. Up from that might be the psychological level, whereby they work on a psychological level with that theme of the moon. And then on the top level, on the, these go subtler and subtler. And on the subtlest level, then the recitation of mantra sound is so important. It is the most subtle next to light. Mm. I like to think of sound as slow light. Mm-hmm. And it has a powerful effect because our very memories are embedded or crystallized into this body. Our karmic map is one that is part of a crystallization. And that crystallization in a bodily form, in its subtlest level, has a, has a, a, a resonation. And so when we chant mantras that the saints, the the very brilliant, the same folks who brought us the most brilliant philosophy that human beings have ever developed, those same folks developed an understanding of sound therapy. And the sound therapy goes beyond just tonality. It goes to the very heart of what I was speaking to, where there are all these different tones that relate to the body itself, as well as the environment, as well as onto greater levels of help, if you will, within. If you can think of the whole thing we're in as one large body, so then it's medicine and it resonates particularly with that ray or that person that is out of balance. It's so interesting because I had Shantala Sri Ramaya on. I don't know if you know who she is, but she has a Vedic chanting school. Uh, called Veda Studies, and she used the word medicine as well, like using a mantra for a specific need is like a medicine for that particular thing. And that's just been sitting in my awareness because I've been chanting with her, I've been taking her classes. Beautiful. Um, and it's it's very lovely. It's just, it feels like the purest 
remedy that you can possibly do because it's it just lightens you in all levels. So If you are looking for better ways to understand astrology and yourself, you are in luck because I have a course out now called The Planets, and it goes in depth into the stories of the planets, their characteristics, how we can have a relationship with them, how they may afflict us and what to do about it. You also learn a lot about karma, about Vedic astrology, what it is, where it originates from, how to read your chart. So it's a pretty in-depth look and a helpful tool for you to better understand astrology. If you'd like to learn more, you can go to weaveyourbliss.teachable.com. You'll see the planets there and you can click through and learn more. When you were talking, I was thinking, I often tell my clients or tell people in general, awareness is the best remedy. I think it's sometimes it's obvious somebody comes to you and they're like, I have a problem with my mother, right? They know when they do, but there's something that happens when you talk about it in terms of what you're seeing in the karmic map and you start to pull out like what that karmic relationship is. What is the nature of it? What are the contents around it? Is it a lineage thing? Is the mother possessed by something? Is the stress of money or abuse of another parent or whatever it is, you can start to pull it apart. And it's like they have an aha moment of like being that, that thing you were saying about being seen, you know, which is also what happened to me when you were talking. I was thinking my first experience was very similar. I was kind of like a friend told me to see a Jyotishi and I thought, whatever, I didn't know the difference between a Jyotishi mm-hmm. and a Western astrologer. And so I went in and I, I sat down and they said some things that nobody even knew and no one in my life knew. And I was like, okay. <laughs> uh-huh. It was sort of like the universe reoriented me in that moment and was like showing me a carrot that I didn't even know existed. And I was just like, okay, I'm moving towards that, whatever the duration is, you know? So it was nice to hear kind of an echo of that and your experience, but I would love for you to talk about karma. Cause that's such a topic that, uh, you know, it's just such a phenomenally interesting topic. It never ceases to interest me. And so we can see the karmas that may be fruiting in someone's life. Maybe you could talk about what that looks like, you know, maybe give an example. But what I'm really curious about in this moment is like, when we're aware of what's there, my sense is that we can move through even more karma in a particular lifetime. Like maybe there's more that can come to fruit because they always say like, when you start doing the work, it gets worse before it gets better. And that's almost like a karmic purge. You know, so I've been thinking a lot about that, about like how we can actually do a lot more healing if we're aware and we're like willing to move through it. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Well, I believe I might have a lot of thoughts on <laughs> karma. It's a fascination for me. And I think the reason that I, when I discovered uh, Vedic astrology, which again, I, I, I kind of, you know, kind of walked into a glass door and I recognized that there was something that I found there that I'd been searching for my whole life. I like to think of karma like nature. In fact, the, my viewpoint on it is that there is nothing but karma. I, oftentimes when people have said things like, well, 
you know, do you believe in karma? My answer back often is, well, do you believe in nature? Because karma is nature's memory. Karma, we know there's another word, dharma, which means universal ethics or the universal law. But karma and dharma are the two sides of one coin. And uh, because dharma is what we see in our bodies. When, our, when you want your body to be healthy, that part of you that wants the health, that wants to come back, that wants to heal, that's dharma. Because it is, you see, the very dharma of the body to heal itself, to find its way back to order. And order is something that consistently every being, every creature wants to have health want, and, and health, swastha, as it was called in Sanskrit. Swasta, meaning to be, as you will, standing firmly in oneself, healthy, sound, sound of body, sound of mind. And so, karma is the underlying intelligence of the interconnectivity of everything. See, the reason why it becomes such a mystery is because we believe we're separate. It no longer is much of a mystery if we think about ourselves and everything as part of one body, everything as part of, of one movement of time. But that's a hard thing to do, admittedly. When I look out and I look at when you say, hey, this is my hand, you know, and you turn the hand back and forth and you look and you say, oh, this is my hand and I grip my hand. I can move my fingers and this is my will. So what about free will? Well, free will, you see, is very much a part of the package just as much as is the predestiny, you will, the modeling that must be there. Most, see, some people say to me, you know, in the West, we're very free will oriented. And uh, we want to be able to change our mind and change our body, change our mind and, well, change our mind <laughs> to feel better, to not feel what we're feeling, but also to change our world around us. And I often say to some of my students, I say, you know what, you're not very expansive there at times with that because you, you must realize that in some ways, everything that you've become is a part of, quote, free will. It's just that it happened. A long time ago. Yeah, within the framework of your karmas. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But also the thing is, is that when people say, I want, you know, an all-powerful free will, I look at them and I say, you know, really, if you look at this deeply, that may not be the best choice. Because you see, for all the things that we want to change, there are a thousand other things that we do not want to change. We just expect them to be that way. We expect our body to act and react the way it does to the world around it. That is karma. You were born into this body, into this human body, whether we're born male or female or something in between. It's all part of a destiny pattern that's fixed. And that fixity of karma is something we work with consistently where we look at the world and we say the majority of everything is fixed, but we have this free will to be able to come in and change the movement in different directions while we profoundly appreciate what it is that we have. Mm. That we are no longer 
in a cycle of birth and, and death and birth and death within a realm of being that does not have reflection. Reflection leads to self-awareness. Self-awareness is what leads to spirituality. Spirituality is the core of finding freedom. That idea of freedom that everyone is looking for, that people talk about in Sanskrit, moksha, moksha, you know, Mm. liberation, liberation. And they say, well, that comes from knowledge. And it takes a human brain, as far as we know, it takes a human brain, at least on this planet, right? To be able to do that because we're the organism that has evolved to have that kind of reflection and that idea of self-awareness. So when it comes to how that karma functions in our lives, well, to me, I latched on as soon as I discovered that there was a way to map karma and understand the movements of karma. I latched onto it with, you know, arms and legs because I began to, to see very clearly that something's afoot. Something is going on here that no matter how much I willed myself to get better back in those days when I had a lot of health problems, it didn't move. It didn't budge. And for example, way back there in those early days, I had some trouble. I loved to sing and chant, and, but I was having trouble with my throat, constantly getting these, this kind of a chronic sore throat thing. Anyway, long story short, after one of those visits, to see Mantriji. He said, oh, as an upaya, you do this and this, you see, and I'll set it up for you, you know, but you must take these drops you know, and, and do this for, for the rest of your life. And I said, well, gladly I will. But when it came time to it, there were no drops and there wasn't anything. And I was told, oh, don't, don't worry about it. It's been taken care of. And miraculously, it was. How did that work? Was it my free will? No. Was it His free will. Well, one could say yes. And this idea that each one of us has a has personal power Mm -hmm. and the ability to affect our environment, we know that's true. And that's the very reason that knowledge in the right hands, knowledge of the elements, knowledge of what this is built from in the right hands, has a healing quality. And sometimes you see with Vedic astrology or otherwise, we must learn some hard truths as well, right? Just as the doctor who, the surgeon who has a scalpel or a laser, they can go in and heal you, but there is some pain that comes with it. And so oftentimes people who get on the spiritual path, they come because of their wounds. They come because they recognize that there's a lot of pain and there has been a lot of pain. And what? Back to that every organism wants to heal. Every organism wants to find its way back to order. And so, dharma, the understanding of what is, quote, right and wrong to do within ourselves and from ourselves with others, is a constant job. And it's, we're constantly throwing curveballs, you see, as to what is to be done in this situation. Thou, not, thou shall not kill. Well, except for A, B, C situation. <laughs> And so it goes that we're constantly learning. And that is the reason that the Vedic sciences spent so much time in art. The Vedic sciences are about, and and there's so much information, and so many people do spend so much time involved with them to understand how to orient in this world so that you can be in alignment with the greater whole, with the greater good. And in doing that, 
then there are then you minimize the future pains. And so karma is around us looking at where we have misalignments, you see, within ourselves. But also, it's not a beat ourselves up phenomena, too, because whatever, and know this for whoever might be listening, not everything that happens to you is because of your own karma. There are different levels of karma. One is the one that's related to the self. I'll call it the subjective. But there's also all the other beings out there, and they all have free will. And so there's that level of the objective in terms of others. And then there's the level of the objective in terms of nature. So tsunamis and earthquakes and pandemics are part of that. And we live within that. And that's not our fault. That's part of being in an environment that's constantly changing and shifting. Again, if we can embrace it all, all three levels, the subjective, what is called Adhyatmaka, and then Adhibhautaka, the objective, and then Adhidaivaka, having to do with Daivam, or Deva, or the divine, as we say in English, which our English word divine comes from the Sanskrit, uh, Daivam. And so, to understand that all three of those are at work, and there, there's no... There's no separation between the three. And when we can see that, and when we can accept that, then Om Shanti, Shanti, Shanti. There's mm -hmm. peace, peace, peace unto all the three sources of karma, which are the subjective, the objective, and the environment, or the devam. And so when people chant, people a lot of in yoga and so forth, they chant those three uh, Shantis at the end. Those three Shantis are oriented to the three sources of karma. The three mm. levels of existence. Wow, I'd never thought of it that way, but that's, you know, it is so powerful. It feels like you're invoking peace in all things. Like that's always what I thought of it as. Yeah. But And that peace comes through the knowledge that what is happening to me is not just about me. How do I know that something that happens to me isn't part of a dynamic that has a, a, something to play out? In five years, 10 years, maybe 20 years down the line, I would say to you, in the early days when I had illnesses and so forth, oh, there was so much regret. How could I have done? Because of personal choices I had made, how could I have done this? And how could, I, how could that other person have done that to me? I never should have listened to them and so forth. But you know what? I wouldn't be where I am today without it. And it I definitely, I would say, even though there was a lot of pain in those days, I would not go back and change it because if I did, I never would have met. I never would have left. I never would have discovered Ayurveda. I never would have met my teacher. I never would have this. I never would have that. It's really fascinating because I've been thinking a lot, like as both of us being Jyotishis and Sky Watchers and seeing what's unfolded over the pandemic and what the astrology has been like. And for me, I really feel like it's pushing us all to really step into giving our gifts and being in our purpose. Like it's forcing us to deal with the, some of those unsavory karmas that maybe we've been trying to sweep under the rug. And it's, yeah. it's saying, let's look at the reality here and really step into your purpose. And that's part of the reason I started this podcast was like, let's do this. <laughs> so I'm yeah. wondering if you might speak briefly just about that, like, in terms of the astrology that's been going on and, and how you feel this can help us 
or understanding our personal karmic map can help us really be in our purpose? Well, I think uh, quickly is to say that purpose has two levels. One, the higher purpose of everyone is self-understanding, self-knowledge. And that's something that we were just speaking to previously. And that has to do with consistently looking for ways to improve ourselves, which takes time and energy. We must uh, allow time in a week, in a day, you see. We have to schedule it nowadays. Otherwise, it doesn't get, yeah, yeah. If we don't schedule that time, okay, for that self-development, for that understanding, you see, it must be there. And the more that we do that, the more that our sense of purpose, uh, not the, not the, I call it Dharma with a capital D and Dharma with a little d, you know, what it is that our purpose is ultimately becomes informed by that larger level. And then it will guide us into understanding how to act and, and so that we calm down the reactions in our world that oftentimes take us away from what it is that we're best at or take us away in terms of fear. Oftentimes, I find that clients will speak to me about things and they want to do something, but there's the apprehension because of the fear of the unknown. And so, following one's purpose is one about identifying what will be the best course of action as one appropriate to one's role. There's a difference between if one is a, quote, householder, if one is married and has children. There's a difference between that and if one is a spiritual aspirant, right? They're unmarried, they have no children, and so forth. They're, they're very different paths to take, both of them valid and beautiful. And so the typical person who, you know, I'm interacting with mostly householders, although I I do get a lot of monks and nuns and so forth, but is to ask and to look as to not what the person most wants, but really what it is that is appropriate to the person in that time, at that place in their life. Something that's done classically is to look at the, quote, Purusha Arthas, or the aims, these four aims of life. And the first two of those are Artha, which is security, and the other one is Kama, which is the pleasure point, and uh, the pleasure principle, the enjoyments of things, and so forth. And so, oftentimes, I find that there's so much pressure in the West around the pleasure side you must find something that is the most, it's the thing that your heart wants the most. Well, that can be so, but oftentimes then it undermines the very practical matter of, oh, well, I'm married, I have a three-year-old, and we're having real big problems in our marriage because of money and because of security. So purpose, it's a, a beautiful but multifaceted thing when we start to look at someone's life around around a sense of purpose, about being able to follow that purpose. The most important thing is to recognize it is something that you yourself, it will support the bigger, you see, plan of self-actualization, of seeing the self clearly, while it is in alignment with the practicals, the practicality of, hey, You know, I have a wife and children, or I have a husband, I have whatever it may be, or I'm a student, and I want to go on to to get an education that will give me 
a career that will give me security and so forth. For example, in Vedic astrology, one of the most important things is that we recognize that no matter what what is seen or what we do, it is very much about how that we do what we do, the awareness of what, of how we do what we do. And I think that ultimately it is more important to know, you see, about even if we're in a job that could be questionable around ethics, like, you know, I've had some people who were involved in pharmaceutical companies and they began to question the purpose of what they were doing. And I said to them, I said, look, on the one hand, uh, there's going to be some good that comes out of that. And yet I also understand what you mean in terms of your role. So is this my purpose, they might say. And I'd say, well, look, you take what it is that it's given in front of you. Try to manage the, the, the part that isn't good by taking a percentage of your income and giving it to targeting it into charity, into places that you know you can do good with it. And so oftentimes we may find ourselves in situations where we may not feel like we're right in our purpose, but it's a part of the greater plan. And then as long as we keep uh, moving towards self-understanding, the more that we'll become aware, clear about what it is that is right for us to do in that moment at that time. But Jyotish or Vedic astrology often is about that kind of timing and looking at it. As well as, you know, I do with the people a lot of times, a lot of, as you might as well, uh, what I'll call career counseling, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that may be different from what someone says when they say, what is my purpose? Definitely. Yeah. And I I mean, I'm a big advocate for doing work that really lights you up, that's in your zone of genius and also giving back to (laughs) like, let's cover all the bases. Yeah. (laughs) If it's possible, why not hit all of them? Yeah. Well, I so appreciate your time. And this has been a really, I could talk to you for hours, like literally, but I know we don't have hours, but I would love to have you talk because, you know, people may not realize that they can actually study with you that, you know, I've done Uh your courses. And so maybe you can talk like in the beginning, I remember you saying you started with the astronomical and like your courses are so multifaceted as far as what you're learning about Jyotish. And you really start with that astronomical piece Maybe you can talk a little bit about what's in your level one course and when it will be starting and all of that. Sure. Well, Paula, I have, as you know, a three-year study program and it's standalone units. So basically in the first year, I have a level one and a level two or, or six semesters, right? Like that. And it doesn't mean that everyone wants to or does go through all three years, but it is there for the people who want to. So, uh, but the first year, in uh, level one, I call it, uh, starts every January, I start a new group. And that level one course this year begins uh, January the 19th. Uh, what I'm doing is I'm doing, these are all webinar, right? So it's all online and all the classes are recorded and they're available to be you know, seen on my uh, website and you, know, you can log in and so forth. But they're, uh, this time around, January 19th is a Wednesday. So it's Wednesdays from four to six. And the, you know, what it is that will be covered, of course, are the Vedic tradition. So we'll look at the cultural background, historical cultural background of it. We, of course, will talk about karma, the four sources, four types of karma and understanding how it is the karmic model and you fit together. 
And then, yes, we do uh, what I call astronomy for astrology, basics that we go through. And just so you know, uh, there's also, you don't have to do any math. Okay, so some people often ask me that. And so it's not math heavy at all. In fact, it's very math light, especially in the level one course. And then, of course, we go on to do the astrological basics uh, to understand how to map the sky in a two-dimensional form and essentially how that the karma interfaces with that to become a sky map, you know, horoscope becomes karma scope. And then through that, we then bridge into chart analysis or interpretation and we get certain levels of understanding about how it is that we can start to do basic interpretation in that first course. So it's about four months long. And uh, when you come out the other end, there's also a study that you can do if you want over the summer. And then there is another uh, level that begins in August. And so it goes. And oftentimes people will come in and uh, they'll take some people come in and they go all the way through. Other people come in, they take level one, level two, and then they take a gap year and they come back and they do it and they take time to study. And uh, I also have people who are, you know, senior students who are there to help to tutor people if people want, you know, private instruction. I used to do a lot of that myself, but right now I just have too much going on. I'm not taking on new students for tutorial tutorials uh, like that, but, uh, but also, I'm shifted everything online. But you know, I think maybe in 2023 that probably I'll go back to doing some live courses, which I used to do for years and years. And we had the, a large group of dedicated students who would come in, fly in from different places, and um, and now if we do that, we'll even have a larger community. So also we have a we have like facebook group that we set up and so there's a way for people to interact students to interact with each other more great so do they find out more on your website yeah vedic sorry tradition? so yes <laughs> uh, my website is vedic traditions v e d i c vedic traditions.com you can go there and you'll find links uh, to the level 1 course get on we'll my share newsletter that. yeah yeah we can share that yeah get on my newsletter if you want to uh, list if you want to uh, be, you know, keep informed and so forth. Great. We'll put all of that into the show notes. So I just have some rapid fires for you. And then all right, you, you should can, you can tell me, you know, whatever comes to mind. So what is one piece of advice that's really helped you in your life? I think a very important piece of advice is to continue to find a way to understand yourself through your history but not worry about the future. So to me, the most important thing is, is to remain present because in the present, creativity happens. I love that. Um, so when you feel anxious, confused, or frustrated, what is the first thing that you do to ground yourself? Usually I come back to my breath. I sit. Often it will be mantras that I chant uh, to bring me back. Yeah, I think that is the most important thing for me because I've done a lot of those. And so they're like an old friend. It's like coming home. Um, so what is your favorite hot beverage? Uh, that would be Egyptian licorice tea at this point. Wow. That's the first time I've gotten that answer. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> the the follow-up to that is what would your last meal on earth be? 
Uh, well, if it was my last meal on earth, uh, it would uh, be a vegetarian meal um, because I'd want to go out light. <laughs> Good. So do you have a morning routine and what part, if any, is non-negotiable for you? Yeah, I do have a morning routine. Uh, the routine is, of course, from Ayurveda, there's a lot of different things in there, but uh, I wake up, I drink at least one to two body temperature glasses of water, which I think is super, really important for the body. Um, I exercise so that I do that first thing, either I am swimming or I am, you know, walking, jogging, this kind of thing, but to get the heart rate up super important, then bathe, then I sit, uh, ideally each day. Sometimes, some days it's not possible, but um, then I sit and I, I, I do a mantra recitation. And uh, some in it, a lot of the importance of doing mantras is about the breath and the breath work, how it is that the breath is able to change the consciousness. It is so powerful. So after doing the, quote, breath work of exercise, the bathing changes the temperature of the body, and then the mantra recitation also changes the breath and the the vibration of the body. And then I'm ready for the day to eat and then to begin doing the work. That's so great. I normally do my exercise after, so you've inspired me. I'm going to try that. I'm going to try the reverse. Well, one of the reasons it's also best in the morning is, is that you're going to have the most strength in your muscles. You will build muscle, you will build uh, endurance in the morning much more rapidly than you will in the afternoon. Good. So tell us about a person who inspires you and why. Well, I would say uh, my, well, my teachers, but one person. Uh, at this moment, my teacher, Hart Defoe, has inspired me. He's inspired me yet again through another level of teaching that has been happening that opened my mind even further to what it is that this whole theme is about and what light is about. So I've been inspired to, to continue my study of light. Beautiful. Um, so something people might not know about you. Um, that I've been a musician. That's something that most people don't know. Uh, what did you so play? I, what instrument or? Uh, guitar and voice. Oh, nice. So I, Played with um, a friend of mine. I had a music partner for 15 years, and but we never did really uh, go public. We did some some house concerts and so forth like that. But um, that's something that uh, isn't really out there. What are you reading right now that you would suggest? Um, probably nothing that anyone would be think would be popular. I have been. Uh, yeah, uh, nothing that would be popular. I'll just say that because I read sometimes uh, Shastra. I've taken a liking recently to Paladipika again. So I've been picking that up, which is a, a Vedic astrology ancient text. What is one thing that's bringing you joy right now? My relationship to my wife. It has been an interesting journey through the pandemic with friends and family and so forth. But to see how it is to interact with another person when you go through the ups and downs of a lockdown and life and so forth, but to watch a relationship, the beauty of a relationship unfold. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for taking the time and for being here and good well, luck thank with you, your, Paula. What your a, next what round. What a beautiful thing you're doing. I really appreciate it. Thanks. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Weave Your Bliss podcast. We hope it was inspiring for you. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a comment for us. I want to thank the team at Team Podcast who helped get this podcast out to you. And also to thank the musicians who were the creators of this beautiful music we're listening to now. It comes from an album, Fragments of a Season, by Alexis Georgopoulos and Jeffrey Cantulodesma. So check it out wherever you get your music. Have a wonderful day, and we will connect soon on a future episode.